Hello everyone, this is Trey Borden, and welcome to this episode of What We Gonna Do. I guess we can kind of jump right in. I really appreciate you guys doing this, because I think that one of the most important things that we kind of, for us non-journalists, for people who are on the ground, and for people who are running businesses, and for people who are trying to figure out kind of what policies should be the highest priority items to change to kind of lead to a different world is through your work, is through journalism, is through media. Um, and I think a lot of what, I mean, I would say that media is very culpable in terms of like why some of these inequities have persisted, kind of the narratives that surround people of color in this country, black people, um, and also the narratives that white people have been allowed to kind of like uh, think are true. And I, I think that media has a really interesting role in both um, having supported these and also dismantling a lot of the misunderstandings that we have. So um, I guess let's start out by saying, Erica, how would you describe kind of the difference that you've seen in terms of how the media is? Well, first of all, uh, introduce yourself and um, I guess talk about maybe how you think the, the media has covered things differently than, uh, you know, Trayvon and kind of past mm -hmm. uh, killings that have led to protests. But that's a well, good place to start. Yeah, sounds like a good place to start. So I am a columnist with the LA Times, newly minted. Uh, I've only whoop, been a whoop. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> I've only been a columnist for a couple of weeks, but I was previously a columnist in Sacramento at the Sacramento Bee, also in the Midwest, the Indianapolis Star, and I grew up in Ohio. So I've been in California now for about five years. Um, so, you know, I guess my perspective, first off, is we should probably define what media is because it's such a huge, sprawling thing. I mean, the LA Times is, you know, would be considered more traditional, mainstream, old form media where you'd have your more streaming stuff, which is, you know, just completely social media based for the most part. Um, and so there's different, you know, when we talk about covering protests, there's different formats and different platforms and different, you know, people coming at this from different ways. For traditional media, I, I mean, I would say that we, it's, I would, I would like to say that we're getting better than say Ferguson, you know, at that point sure. and how covered in terms of race. But I think it's, you know, it's an ongoing issue. I mean, you see it, there's been complaints about coverage, um, the way that we've covered these pro most recent protests pretty much everywhere in the country. Um, particularly on race, um, on who's writing the stories and how the stories are framed. So, I mean, it's it's kind of all over the map. I think it's an evolving thing, and I would like to think that we're always evolving and getting better, but it's not always in a straight line. Um, but, I mean, I guess that's how I would, in general, describe it. Well, I also think that Ferguson was a wake-up call for a lot of journalists, particularly Black journalists, who are going there and saying, like, oh, my God, what's going on? I mean, there was an article I think I read where they quoted a bunch of journalists who have now kind of risen in prominence in the intervening years, but that was their kind of first scratch at like, holy shit, what's going on in this country? And I think that that, um, that has impacted how this has been covered because there's a lot of different people who are in positions of influence within journalism. Truly, I mean, like if you look back to say 92 and the riots here, I mean, the LA Times has always had an issue with recruiting and retaining black journalists, for example, and this has come up again, most re again recently, but you know, it was about that who was framing the coverage in 92 was mostly the white journalist editors in the newsroom. The black journalists did not appreciate that. And there was a big, you know, blow up of probably one of many um, 
in those years about the riots. Um, and fast forward to Ferguson, I mean, newsrooms look different then than they do now, in part because of the year, the recession, whatever. But I do think what was interesting about the Ferguson riots is you had, you know, people coming in from the Washington Post, from, you know, from the coastal media, um, some of whom, like you look at Wesley Lowry, he grew up in Cleveland as well, so he understands that we grew up in the same roughly area. Um, racial dynamics to maybe somebody more than who somebody worked for, I don't know, the LA Times or someplace else where the racial dynamics were different in that part of the country. And so there were a lot of people that came in and went, oh shit, what is this? I've never seen anything like this before. But then there it was- wasn't like this at Brown. <laughs> yeah, and then there were just as many black journalists like, yeah, this is exactly how it is. So it's, you know, it's how that, what, what coverage gets generated, what gets lifted up and what gets the major narrative is oftentimes, it's not just the stories that are out there, it's how Google promotes it, how it's promotional, promoted on social media, what becomes the dominant narrative. Because um, oftentimes people say, well, the media is not paying attention to that. If you actually Google that, there's like 25 stories on that, but it just hasn't made it into the narrative of what we see at top line, scrape level Twitter, scrape level, level Facebook, scrape level Instagram, that sort of thing, so. Sure, and I think a lot of the coverage, I mean, even that does come out is, is you know, it's how it's interpreted by the people in that region, you yeah. know? And so, so Allison, so you have gone from, you're from the Midwest, Wisconsin, and then you spent a bunch of time on us, on our coasts, and now you're back home um, in the Midwest. How have you seen from like a Midwest, from the perspective of where you are now, um, kind of how are things interpreted that the media turn, turns out? And I think, are, do people look to different things for the media there? Well, I don't know that they look to different things. I think that the way media is consumed is a lot different. Um, there's a heavy, heavy well, reliance. I'm sorry, Allison, can you also describe where you are? <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which is just north of Wisconsin, um, in a very, very remote area. Um, and I do a little reporting for some local papers up here. Um, and I've been up here since... See, I left California in early September, so just under a year. We're in the What's mitt. That? You gotta do the mitt. We're in the so mitt. it's not really the mitt. It's wait now. I gotta. So if this is Wisconsin, right? No, this is Wisconsin, and this is Michigan. Wait, do I have them reversed? No, it's this way. I can't help so you. <laughs> the UP is up here, actually. Yeah. So the. So you have to go up north of the mitt, and then it's like a little hat that sits on Wisconsin that looks kind of like a rabbit. Got it. Um, and I'm in like the rabbit's belly, so like right north of Wisconsin. Um, okay, so wait, what was the question? Oh, how is – so there's a real heavy reliance on mainstream broadcast media here in a way that I feel like is different than the circles I was moving in in the West Coast. That might be more of like a rural thing. Um, and there's still a heavy reliance, especially up here. I maybe wouldn't see this as much in like Southern Wisconsin, but definitely up here on traditional, your print newspaper, whether it comes, I mean, most of them don't come every day anymore, but once a week. Um, so there's still a heavy reliance on those kind of mediums. And uh, it, in terms of print, these are not, um, they're not really equipped to be incredibly timely. And so in terms of what people are consuming about what's going on right now, with um, you know this these protests and everything that's happening, it's they're heavily relying on broadcast mainstream media for their information. 
um, on that. I will say, I think things like, uh, I'd say Ferguson in particular kind of paved the way for people to uh, take a bit more seriously the sort of like on the ground, more like alternative reporting, whether that's like alternative media outlets, whether that's independent people recording on the ground footage, uh, you know, maybe mainstream media is adopting this a lot more, but I think that where there maybe was a little bit of barrier of not taking that seriously, uh, that's changed a lot. And I don't know if that's just, uh, you know, because these aren't people who are really using social media actively. And mm. I think there was like this sort of inherent skepticism of it not being official. Uh, whereas I think we're now at the point where it's kind of shifted and that's seen maybe as a more like, raw or unbiased uh, account of what's happening. Does it help that the kind of locus of this most recent protest is kind of just right down the road in the Midwest in Minneapolis, or is that like... I don't think it really has... It might as well be somewhere far away. Well, and I'm speaking like because I'm so rural right now, I think maybe there is a little bit more of a like, oh, that's closer to our back door. But I think for people up here in Minneapolis, and Milwaukee are almost just as far away as like Sacramento. Um, it's kind of seen as like a totally different uh, lifestyle, different world. Um, I do think, uh, and I didn't see this, but I'll just kind of recount this story in terms of how I think, uh, what should we say, like consumers of media are responding is, um, I have a good friend who's probably in her mid seventies. Um, she grew up very rural. She grew up pretty poor. Um, you know, they scraped, her and her husband scraped enough money up to kind of retire up here. He's passed away, so she lives alone. And she worked in a factory factory for her whole life. And um, and I was kind of talking to her about this interview that I was doing and kind of uh, trying to use this as an inlet to talk to her about the kind of stuff I learned in Sacramento. And, and she mentioned to me that the only time she had ever really, like, interacted with any Black people was when she was doing factory work before she retired. Um, and how she always thought like black people were like the most polite people she'd ever met in her life and how, you know, they just must be a polite people. And she was like telling me how she was watching the news the other day. And Al Roker was talking about like the conversations, right. That you have as like a young black youth with your parents about how to behave, especially how to behave around police or even just in white circles. And it was so mind blowing to her that like, this, but she was able to at least like make that connection um, in terms of like, like oh, they're being polite because they feel unsafe. Right. Like she was like, oh, I didn't realize that, that the reason these people were so polite to me is because they'd actually been raised that way because the world outside of their, you know, family or community is very dangerous. Um, and it was really... I sort of came in here with a bias of like anyone over the age of like 60 is almost like a lost cause. Um, and so to see this woman who's, you know, like maybe had operated with this sort of one way of thinking to see everything that's going on and actually make a shift and say, Oh, I had no idea what was happening. Like that's like one little anecdote, but so something as problematic as we think the mainstream media is, and I'm not, you know, trying to, to get them off the hook, um, you know, some of what's going on is, is having an impact and kind of shifting people's minds about how they think about these things. So it's not all bad, I guess, maybe is the point. Of yeah, I was, was going to jump in really quick too, because in my, yeah. my time in Indiana, I mean, that's one of the things that I learned quite a bit. It's like, 
I think in general, sure, people, you people are here, you know, about understanding stuff if this is the lowest level, but in reality, people are like here. Most, especially, you know, and the number of people in rural parts of the Midwest who have gone their entire lives and never met anybody who's a person of color, never met anybody who's, or at least they know of that they know is gay, is like mm-hmm. way bigger than most people think. And so their entire perceptions of entire cultures goes down to this little screen. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the few reporters who choose to go out and talk to people. So it's, it's when it comes to like these huge, like, societal convulsions like this that perception that's been built over years whether it's through you know sitcoms down to you know your evening news to your newspaper and what photo choices on the front of the front page is extremely important because you're talking about basically either building on biases that have been built over years or tearing them down and so as journalists we have to understand we're not just writing for people in LA and on the coast that have been fighting about this for decades, we're writing about people who don't know anybody else that doesn't look like them, literally. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge thing about this country and in mass media that we are writing and like, and showing and, and covering something for this huge audience with these huge range of experiences. So. Right. And I think that, you know, that's what's been really interesting about trying to get people on the same page is there's so many pages. You know, and there's so many different ways of interpreting this. And there's also such a, this is, we're in the age of fake news. You know, this is all, this is like, it's like y'all been in COVID, <laughs> you know, in terms of the journalism and media industry. And so I think that this kind of hits at a very interesting time because on the one hand, you know, obviously kind of economically um, and on the business side, journalism has been struggling for a while. Like newsrooms have been contracting. Journalism, you know, people have actually been having to, be more nimble because traditional resources aren't available. At the same time, the kind of role of media is being questioned overall by a president and an administration who would have people who would, who would love for everyone to distrust what's coming out of mainstream media. Um, and so on the flip side of that, from, you know, from my perspective, it seems that the role of the media is actually more important than ever. So kind of like you're strapped and people don't trust you, but it's also evident what happens when we don't have it. So like, can you, can maybe Erica, did you want to speak to that first? So like, how is, as a, as a journalist and someone in, in media, how, what's, how is the interplay between that? That's not like a convoluted question. I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think it's on the one hand, you know, scrutiny of how we do our jobs has never been greater. And I, don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I think that we over the years have been able to get away with a lot of shit that we haven't been able to just because no, and earlier on because there was no alternative. Now, you know, later because we were the dominant, you know, business model. Um, I think that every medium and every, like whether it's radio, whether it's TV, whether it's print has gone through its own, you know, has met its enemy on the digital side, so to speak, and tried to figure out how to, make peace um, and things have evolved from there. I think that there's no doubt that Trump trashing the press and the free press has been hurtful. But I also think that it kind of, a lot of this plays into kind of what Allison was saying about the people that are oftentimes more likely to fall for fake news are people who already have preconceived notions about other groups of people. All fake news really does is it takes what people assume and it just exaggerates that to an extreme, 
like if you live in some super rural white area and the only black person you've ever seen, only thing you've ever seen about black people is people who are being violent. Unlike, you know, the woman that Allison was talking about, if you have Fox news blasting that black people are tearing up cities, I mean, it's a lot easier to believe than like if, because it, it confirms your own pre-existing biases and that's right. kind of the danger of, of fake news and the danger of that. Um, and frankly, it kind of like it, it, digs a hole it preys on a hole that mass mainstream media has already dug for itself by only catering to certain groups i mean one of the i think one of the worst decisions both for fighting fake news and for furthering our democracy one of the worst trends that's happened is basically this consolidation of media organizations on the coast because mm. because what happens is is that they come into the midwest and cover it like it's Iraq or something else. And they're like, Oh, look at these people. Let's talk to them. And it's like, I mean, I can say that growing up in Ohio every four years, New York times would come in and write a story and it would be almost true or mostly correct. Or like, and it would never quite get it because they never hired anybody or never really got as many people in their newsroom that were from these areas they were trying to cover. So, I mean, it's a difficult challenge to get out of because we've kind of made some of this ourselves and you know, the fake news is kind of, um, just exacerbated that. So I don't, I don't really know if there's an answer yet. I think we're still trying to figure it out, but it's definitely a challenge and it's definitely affecting the way people, what people believe is true, what the truth is. So that's my take. And in terms of, I'll say something to add. Um, well, uh, yes. Um, I think agree with everything. And then I also think that one of the issues with fake news is it's sort of an, a large part of this is, I mean, the president sort of really branded fake news and it sort of in the, especially in the early days was whatever he said was fake news was fake news, but there is actual fake news, right? There yeah. are sites out there that write about stuff that is not true, you know, Pizzagate, whatever. And then another thing we have going on right now is is increased edit editorialization right so we have editorialized news which is not fake news it's just news with a slant or a perspective but there's a distinction between those two things and when we talk about fake news a lot of the times what we're talking about is something that's been heavily editorialized or framed in a way that we don't agree with and that's a good conversation to have too but it's it's almost allowed us in the mainstream to forget that there's actual fake news out there that people are reading they're disseminating across forums like reddit um and it you know it's contributing to radicalization and so i think the not maybe not the main harm that's been caused but one of the harms is that it's kind of allowed actual fake news to almost slip beneath the radar because all this time we're talking about fake news like nine times out of ten it's not actually anything that's truly fake um it's just an issue with how it's covered and that nuance just doesn't fit onto Twitter or whatever social platform we're on. Um, so. Right, like Kim Jong-un is alive, <laughs> you know? I thought he was dead. I was like, well, you know, 2020 is all over the place. Um, but that's like not true, I mean, evidently. I mean, it's hard to know what's to believe. Um, well, I think that's a really interesting point about the fact that like, because also a lot of the way that we get news, I mean, for me on social media, a lot of, I mean, I found that out because someone shared that with me on Facebook. You know, I felt like a 75-year-old lady in Rhode Island or you know, <laughs> she doesn't know anything, you know? And so I think that, what do you guys think the role, 
I mean, this is a little out of scope, but, you know, in terms of companies like Facebook that have now been like roundly criticized, there are a lot of blames been put at their feet for the election, kind of allowing themselves to be agnostic to kind of whether things are true or not on their platform when, you know, it's not agnostic when you're making money, first of all. Um, and so kind of, Allison, I want you both to answer this kind of, what do you think the responsibility is of these new media companies that have like outsized sway and, and reach um, to kind of be a judge in terms of what information is being shared? Me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, like, <laughs> is it that sensitive? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I mean, I think that right now, you know, Facebook and Twitter are private companies and they are, you know, I guess legally entitled to make those rules for themselves. But uh, there's a disconnect between what they actually are and how they function in our society, right? Um, they are, you know, news disseminators at this point, And I think they have a greater responsibility than maybe we see Zuckerberg reflecting in some of these congressional hearings and these clips that go viral. Um, I do think it's a bit more nuanced than, than I see reflected in a lot of the conversations I have, you know, around here, I'd say, uh, in that, you know, we want to be very careful about how much power we give any sort of entity to determine, you know, fact versus fiction. And that's sort of maybe where, where whoever is messaging Zuckerberg around what he's trying to do is, is coming from. Um, but at the end of the day, I just see a lot of like jerking of responsibility of like, we're just going to put this information out there. And, you know, if a politician is lying, right, it's important that you know, we're not going to tell you he's lying, we're just, or she's lying, you know, we're just going to expect that you're going to look that up and find that out. And then, um, and, you know, they've added that little info button, which I guess is, you know, it's a thing. Like a question okay? mark, so, it's like, do you think this is true? Right, it's, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, but if you read the bios, they don't have any, I mean, the only time they're, I guess, useful is if it's like the times and it's been around forever, you know, like these like new models, they're not, there's no standard with which they're vetting them. It's like, oh, it was established this year and go for it, you know, read it. So it, I think it's good that the, we're having that conversation. Uh, the efforts seem very, um, that's what I'm looking for, like optical at this point. I don't know that anything that's been done is actually ensuring that we uh, are combating disinformation. Um, I think a lot of that is going on on the more uh, micro level, on the more granular level in like individual conversations. I think that's where the combating of disinformation is happening. I'm not sure that Twitter or Facebook is really being very useful at all at this point. Or it could be, it's like half bots. Uh, what do you have to say? About it? <laughs> I mean, I actually have some very specific thoughts on this. I mean, yeah. the one thing about Facebook and Twitter is that early on, and I say early on, this is probably post-Ferguson 2015, 2016, they, as companies, made the decision that they were going to be news disseminators. They specifically made a, an effort to get into the news business. Mm -hmm. What that did, because their platforms were so, already so huge, and because they controlled so many advertising dollars, taking them away from traditional mainline media, what that did was it shifted 
the business model of mainstream media. So going back to our previous comment about fake news and how like taking aside the, like the pizza gates of the world, but the more slanted news coverage, what that did was it made news organizations have to actually like advertise their copy. So the, the upworthy type headlines, the, the headlines that are supposed to get you to click, um, you know, the uh, stories that are created and written in a way that kind of confirm biases or go after people's biases as they read that. That is very much a function of social media taking over our business model for distribution because mm -hmm. suddenly you get pulled into this thing where the only way you make money is if people click on it and they share it. That, right. that was very much a function that happened because Facebook and Twitter decided to get into the news business. My problem with them is that once they got into the news business and then it became about also disseminating fake, real fake news, then it was, oh, we're platforms. We're right. just putting stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And sorry, New York Times, sorry, LA Times, if these fake news sites are stealing your stuff and putting it out there. We're just platforms. Oh, sorry, New York Times, you have to actually like adhere to like congressional rules of, and rules of liability laws and all of these things. We don't have to do that because we're a platform. And mm -hmm. we're going to steal all your advertising dollars, bury your- But don't shoot us like a media company. Don't look at me. Um, <laughs> and on top of that, that, you know, I, so that's my particular bone to pick with that. But the other thing about saying that they're going to put these truth boxes and stuff, they don't really want to undo that because their business model relies on having everything being like, it's digital. It's, it's how they're, they're, entire algorithms are based for advertising how they make their money on out on algorithms and if you insert human editors into that then it changes the algorithms and so they've gotten to the point where it's such a machine it's such a machine that you it's almost you have to basically they would have to undo their business model to basically right they have no real incentive you know no incentive. at least they have no real financial incentive unless they're able to be fined extremely heavily you okay. know so so much of what we look at is news consumption and it, and it comes across really big in times like this. People have to understand why things are the way they are. And it didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like every, you know, it's not like new mainstream news organizations woke up and decided to write a bunch of headlines that like, that maybe like exacerbate people's biases. No, it came about because of very specific things that have happened over the last decade or so. And Facebook and Twitter have a lot of, have a lot of blame in this, I think. So. Sure. Um, and well, can I add to that? Because yeah, I think also from the consumer standpoint, and I think this is especially true of Facebook, and maybe that's because now that audience skews older, is people scroll through these feeds looking at news articles, and they feel like they're doing something akin to like scrolling through some TV channels, right? Like it's, it's like this is just what's out there, and I'm looking at it. Like because the average like – you know, 56 year old Facebook user that I know that's getting their news from there, they don't understand that they're being fed through an algorithm. They don't understand that like, this is not like sort of a, you know, if you're like scrolling through and flipping through channels and stopping at a few different news stations and you know that Fox is, you know, leans right and MSNBC leans left, that's not the same as scrolling through your Facebook feed, but I think it gives people the same feeling. Like, oh, I'm Like, this is just what's like, popping to the top. This is just most recent yes. content that's been posted. It's like, no, this is all you're seeing and they know that. Yeah, yeah. It's like I try to talk to my dad about his algorithm. I'm like, you're getting this stuff because, you know, my dad is pretty, pretty liberal. Um, you know, that's why you're getting this stuff. Um, 
and why you're not seeing some other stuff. And I don't think especially uh, older users really understand the power that these algorithms have to uh, shift what they're consuming. Older users who just happen to be our uh, most consistent voters. Right, not to um, rag on you know, So it's like all the things, like they, they confluence. Um, switching gears just a little bit, because I wanna make sure we touch upon this. Um, Erica, you know, as a black journalist, I think that there's a specific kind of set of issues that you deal with. Not, I mean, yes, within newsrooms, and you know, I don't know how many black columnists, I think you might have said there's two at the LA Times now. Yeah. Me. The fact that, yeah, I mean, it's not a lot. <laughs> you know, we can disagree on it's not a lot. Um, but also, like, it's one thing to be a white journalist kind of, you know, parachuting into Ferguson or into Minneapolis and, and kind of, like, being struck by the plight of black people and um, kind of reporting this objectively to a larger audience. It's another thing to be a black person who is kind of putting on your journalism hat, going to communities that look like you um, and having to report on things like, you know, black people being murdered, LGBT black people being, you know, even more at risk, both within and without the community. Um, you said yesterday you went to Victorville, uh, which is the site of one of the recent hangings that we're seeing now of black men, you know, suicidal black men who decided to hang during this time. Um, to say it seems sound suspect is, you know, a gigantic and offensive understatement. So what has been the, you know, experience of, of kind of covering that stuff when it hits that close to home? Um, and kind of what is that like? Um, you know, it's interesting. I I think probably my my first probably real like living in the community when all this was happening, probably experiences probably in Sacramento when Stefan Clark got shot, living mm -hmm. so close to where the protests were happening. So it was like hearing marchers from my windows, but the helicopters and the police and, you know, all of it's it's you don't do a lot of sleeping. I mean, it, it, no matter where you are in the country, I mean, after the George Floyd thing, I mean, I, I didn't sleep. I think a lot of people weren't sleeping, but I think it's also this this desire to also consume news. And I think being an opinion writer, it's a different it's a different thing than being an editor and even a reporter sure. because you're somehow tasked with not not only just feeling what you're feeling, but you have to say something profound about it or at least something that is like makes sense about it. And so I think that that is the bend that, that, I mean, I wouldn't give up my job for anything in the world, but at the same time, like it's hard at times like this because it's like, how do you make sense out of a situation that doesn't make sense or a situation that is the same that it was and isn't changing and you're trying to say something new about it that make, that gives people hope, but also you're also very, very feeling very pessimistic and it's like, which way do you go? So there's so many different things to think about and it's tough because it does affect you as a person. And, you know, you think about everybody else in your life that could be affected. And you think about the times that, you know, you've been pulled over by police, like just being in like, I went to Palmdale and Victorville yesterday, which are the cities where two of uh, black men are, you know, supposedly hung themselves. And, you know, I get off the highway and immediately get like, you know, hard stare from like a sheriff's deputy. I'm like, okay. You know, it's kind of, it's, you know. You're like, that tracks. Yeah. And, tracks. I mean, it, and it's one of those, another thing to remember too, particularly if you're, if you're male is like, you know, you go out into these protests, like the cops don't know the difference between you and those protesters. And they're going to think that you are the same. And. Yeah. Ask the homie from CNN. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, dude, who got literally arrested on camera. I mean, that was some stuff. That was the kind of stuff we saw at Ferguson. I mean, that, mm. you know, people being arrested for, you know, just being, and, you know, being reporters, basically, and, and police officers not liking the attention, I guess. I mean, but it's, you know, it's crazy. It's craziness. You know, and I feel like, you know, and Allison, you can speak to this as well. Um, it just, it also seems like during these protests, um, I mean, we're protesting police violence. And then the protests are met with like even more increased police violence. And it's been surprising to see people who are not normally finding themselves targets of police violence, you know, receiving it, both in terms of non-people, like white people, you know, getting their asses beat by cops, but then also um, medics and journalists. Um, what does that do to kind of like the journalist community when like things like that are being shown in the media? I mean, has it somehow radicalized some dormant journalists or newsrooms that are like, you know what, maybe we wouldn't have been so aggressive about things happening to black people, but now we've seen how really horrible it is because they're actually even attacking our organizations. I mean, Allison, have you seen any kind of discussion of that or Erica, have you have thoughts about that? I'm just curious, like, is there more empathy from news people because they are now the targets as well? If I, I mean, that might be a generalization, but. I haven't seen it in the news community in particular. Eric, Erica, I'll let you feel that. Um, I think it's, I mean, I think anytime journalists, something happens to one journalist to another, I mean, it, it just, journalists are the most stubborn, I'm not doing what you told me to do just because you told me to do it group of people like ever. And so when there's something, uh, I think that's the one thing that, that police officers constantly underestimate is that they think that they can like pressure journalists into like not covering them by like, you know, like cracking down when it usually has the exact opposite response. Right. So, and I don't know why year after year after year, they keep having to learn this lesson because it, it, it's just the way it is. Um, but well, that's what you guys are for. You guys yeah, like, exactly. you say? Like, <laughs> like, give me the chance to be the underdog and like, you know, pe- you know, and it's like people just, I mean, that's why people get into journalism. It certainly isn't for the money. You get in it because you want to <laughs> have some sense of like, you know, idiotic save the world syndrome or you know you hold people accountable yeah and so like if it's like you know if i'm going to be arrested for 24 hours for doing you know for protesting people are going to be like yeah sign me up and then i'm going to write a story about it (laughs) and like you know this will be my most read story ever exactly exactly (laughs) well that's really interesting um and i think that we'll have to see i mean because i think that like such a important part and what something i you know, you have what happened at the New York Times with Tim Cotton um, uh, editorial that got published and the, the, I guess the head of the editorial page had to resign um, due not just to public outcry, but to outcry from within the newsroom. Um, and I think that seeing the way this has been covered from the photos that you see of the victims to kind of the, the preponderance of coverage of some of these issues, not just kind of like the police perspective, but, you know, we know so much about Breonna Taylor's life and we know, you know, constantly that her, the police officers have yet to be arrested. We've even seen how that's affected the Senate run in Kentucky. You know, it just seems to be such a a heartening amount of, I mean, I don't watch Fox News, so I don't know how they're doing their jobs right now. Um, Probably the same shitty way as always, but I think that, that, you said what? Fear? Yeah. Fear. Fear sells. Speak more to that, Allison. Like, kind of, what is the counter narrative in terms of journalism? You can speak to that at all. 
Well, what's the count? Sorry, say that last like, word. Kind of like, we've been talking about how like, you know, mainstream media is kind of, a, you know, genuinely grappling with what's happening in the country. Um, and you're talking about how for people who are really resistant to kind of the implications of this movement, fear is being used. Kind of like, how do you see that? Well, I mean, in a more straightforward way, it's like you put enough footage of people, you know, burning buildings or being destructive and like you're in your like tiny insulated community and don't ever see that. It's, it's horrifying. And you're like, yeah, do whatever you want. Send in the troops, whatever. This can't be done. On the other hand, and this has been... <clears throat> interesting i it's actually kind of a little disheartening in a in a weird way but i will say that the people that would consume that type of news um because a lot of them tend to be um <clears throat> you know the patriot movement is full of a lot of really anti-government overreach um folks and what i've seen is those people who may not be at all open to the idea that you know racism is real, systemic racism exists, et cetera, et cetera, they actually still find an entry point through the actual police brutality, right? Like, so it's like they're more, like, they can get on board with, like, the police are running out of control before they can get on board with, like, well, it disproportionately impacts black impact people. And it's frustrating, but it does like move the conversation forward a little bit further. And then you can kind of try and start talking about issues around like poverty and what drives um, crime, what drives high police presence in communities. Um, I'm not gonna say I've had a ton of success necessarily yet moving that needle, but um, it did surprise me actually that there are people who kind of got on board with the like, you know, I don't know that I've ever seen defund the police, but like rein them in that I wouldn't have imagined allying themselves with this movement because they would be very dismissive of what we would say are the underlying causes. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, um, because I think that a lot of these people are first and foremost um, anti-establishment. Right. That's like a big part of what appealed to them about Trump. But. Um, you know, these are people who arm themselves because they see a threat of what we're seeing happening right now, right? That's why they're very pro-2A. They don't want, you know, the cops to come and take away their guns or take away anything. And so there's so much, there's such a high volume of footage of police acting in a way that we don't think they should act toward civilians that I think it is kind of causing a wake up. It's not necessarily the wake up we were hoping for, but maybe it gets them a step closer. And, you know, I don't know. Time will tell, I guess. Yeah. I do think it's really funny that, you know, the same anti-government groups, militias that were protesting at state houses because they were like, oh, it's going to be a shutdown. They're going to like take away our rights. It's going to be a socialist takeover because of coronavirus. And we find out that actually, no, <laughs> the socialist takeover, <laughs> quote unquote, has been because, you know, people are protesting the death of a black man <laughs> so by police. So it's kind of like, you know, it is a strange bedfellows kind of thing like the the man who was arrested last night or the two people arrested last night in oakland the militia members who infiltrated that black lives matter protest at least charged anyway um with infiltrating a black lives matter protest to shoot two you know cops federal agents so it's like you know 2020 is making strange bedfellows for sure yeah it's i mean weird. yeah i mean it's also kind of like the police response to the militia protests yeah. you know i think the contrast of that also convinced a lot of people that like there's a gigantic double standard that is impossible to ignore. So 
It's interesting. Well, and we don't have much more time, so I wanted to kind of get into kind of what's happening now. Like you see uh, news kind of programs and journalists kind of spring up to meet this. I mean, this program, I mean, it's it's been kind of meta to kind of like do this episode. I've never considered myself like a journalist, um, but I think there's, there's, there's journalist activity afoot, you know, here. And so I think it's been really hardening and I would love Allison to kind of talk about like what it was like to kind of put that together. And then if we could get Erica kind of what's going on in newsrooms like the LA Times now to kind of respond to kind of increased need. Are there actions that the, the journalists themselves are taking on? If you feel like speaking about that, I just want to make sure we touch upon those two things. So as our producer, Allison, like what has it been like to be, and you, when we met, you were a part of kind of like a independent alt news outfit and you can kind of like, what's the through line from there to here? Yeah. Yeah. So when Trey and I met, I was the media partner for your art gallery and yeah. uh, you guys put me in a window in the, in a mall. <laughs> and and here. stared at me while I tried to write news briefs and stuff. Um, uh, wait, I just lost right. Trey. Yeah, right. Um, I just lost the thread of the question. Tell me again. What so, yeah, doing? so from that standpoint, and then, you know, obviously you had your Senate Comstock, so now you're the producer of a show, like, what are we yeah, going to do? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think, well, so I went from, you know, from that to Comstocks, which was a business magazine. And this kind of touches on what I was saying earlier about editorialization, which is not inherently bad. In fact, I think a lot of the times, depending on the medium or the platform you're on, it's it's natural. And the, the import is in being transparent about that, right? That like, you know, so I refer a business magazine, it's a business magazine. Like there is a specific point of view and anything I cover will be seen through that lens. And as somebody who hadn't really done a lot of uh, business journalism before that, like that was something I had to learn. So when we talk about a show like yours, you know, my role as the producer, right? I'm a journalist you don't have a journalistic background. This show has a point of view and that's Trey's point of view, but that doesn't mean that the content, right? Shouldn't, shouldn't have that perspective, right? So like, that's kind of what I try and bring to the table. When we select a guest, when we select a topic, it's like, how can we work together to feel like, to, to figure out what are the best questions to ask? And like, what are the avenues we want to go down? And like, what are the potential follow-ups we want to make sure we're drilling down on? That has been different for me, right? Because I've never, you know, produced anything that has such a strong point of view. You have a strong point of view, Trey, right? Um, and Right, but I think it comes together really well, right? It helps having that in the background makes your message more um, cogent to your audience and it, and it roots it in what's happening right now. But it doesn't impede your ability to have a point of view around the show that you're ultimately creating. Um, and so, you know, I think just about any, um, you know, I'd say that like we are trying to do this in a way that's more legitimate than a lot of pundits you see on broadcast, right? Like, you know, we still want to make sure that that everything's rooted in truth, right? And that's important. And you can you can root things in truth and still have your own perspective on how you interpret that right and what's important is being transparent about where you're coming from and and sort of what your perspective is in in guiding these conversations well i mean it's been a very interesting experience for me and i'm i feel so much safer doing this with like your input and kind of like your framing I and mean, what they can't see at home is like a whole 
Google Doc of questions <laughs> that Allison has prepared for me to make sure I stay on track. Um, and it's been really, really useful. And I, and I think that that's the reason people are getting something out of this is that, yes, it's like from my lens, but also like it empowers the guests to really talk about what they want to talk about and kind of stay in their own lane, you know? Um, and so Erica, I mean, you can certainly feel free to talk about your experience as a guest, but I'm also interested in kind of like what activities are happening at your organization or organizations like it that um, are kind of like responding to this changing landscape, if you can. Yeah, to pick up kind of the thread about what Allison was saying about, you know, getting at the truth, I think that is always the concern, I think, of journalists no matter what. I think the, the issue now or the, what's come up now is like, what is the best way to do that? And to your point earlier about people being on different pages, I mean, I think that what we've seen both, you know, at the New York Times, at, you know, the Philadelphia Inquirer is like, you have an entire structure of media organizations that was designed around a truth that was this kind of objective, kind of like mainstream white middle-aged folks, you know, truth where now we have all of these people who are making news, younger folks, progressive people of color, queer folks, that their truths and their lot, their lived experiences are very different things. And so you have news organizations that are kind of ill-equipped to really handle this. And I think you see it in the way, in the decisions that are being made, whether it's, you know, Tom Cotton writing, somebody deciding to let Tom Cotton, you know, write and then print that op-ed to, um, the, whomever wrote the, head, the print headline for the Philadelphia mm -hmm. Inquirer, the buildings matter to, you know, over a story just about, you know, Black Lives Matter and like property destruction, which the story was extremely nuanced. The headline did it a huge disservice. Mm -hmm. um, down to debates we're having inside Daily Times newsroom about the use of the word looters, which has this historical racist connotation to mm -hmm. how we use it, um, to the photo selection, to, you know, what stories get the most promotion um, versus the ones that are, are not. And so I think there's there's been a backlash um, in multiple newsrooms. And it, a lot of it boils down to this idea of how do we get at this larger truth, where you have some people that think the truth is this because that is their lived experience and they haven't really gone out of it. And then there's people that their lived experience is like this because they're all of these, because of intersectionality, basically. Um, and so I, there's a push definitely underway at the LA Times to kind of get more people of color in our newsroom to work on issues of retaining those people because it does mm -hmm. our organization or anybody any other organization no good to recruit a bunch of people of color only to have them leave in a year <clears throat> or a year and a half because of existing problems um there's a push to kind of rethink about who is our audience and who are we writing these stories for who are we taking these photos for who are we writing these stories for online why are we promoting what we're promoting um and, and I think those those conversations are long overdue. The LA Times has said, at least since I've gotten there, and, and I would imagine for at least another year before that, that you know there's very much an understanding that LA County, in addition to the state of California, which is our <clears throat> main audience, is a you know majority minority state county. And so, in order for us to have an audience and re of readers who subscribe to us and to be successful as a business, we need to basically broaden our our audience. And that's not just us. I mean, you look at NASCAR. I mean, like there's a reason why NASCAR was like, okay, Bubba Wallace, we're going to take down that Confederate flag. It's because NASCAR, and I said, somebody who's living in Indianapolis has been dying for years because it's got a very finite group of people, mm -hmm. or white people who are older that have come to these races and they have never, they haven't really done a good job of reaching out. And part of the reason is that damn flag. And so 
the reason they agreed to do that was not just because it was the right thing to do. It was because it was the right business thing to do. And I think that that. Well, they've probably been knowing they were supposed to do it. And this gave them kind of a cover to do it, you know? Exactly. And so I, my hope is, is that, you know, my entire career in these organizations I belong to have talked about diversity and talked about recruiting and all these various different things. But this is the first time, honestly, that I think that news organizations actually understand there's a very legitimate business reason to do it for all of the financial pressures that are external and internal. If news organizations don't find a way to, to actually reach the audiences that are growing, they're going to die. And I think that I'm hoping that that will convince them to take the steps that our union, other news or unions and other news organizations are pushing them to do. So I guess time will tell, but I'm optimistic. And I think that's always been the case. It's like, there's such a, you know, there's a moral reason. And I think that that should be enough. You know, when the stakes are this high and the outcomes are this horrific, there is a moral imperative to kind of change the way you're operating. If it's, if it's adding to this issue in any way. But I think that given our capitalist society, it's like the writing's on the wall. You are not going to survive. You know, you're not going to make any money. And you know, the, the color you care about is not even white. It's green. So is like you can make that case that I think we really have, you know, we're cooking with gas uh, at that point. So um, this has been really interesting. I really appreciate you guys uh, both taking your time to discuss this with me. I think that we are at the beginning of kind of this, this struggle. I would love to kind of in a year kind of kind of say like what happened. I mean, like <laughs> it's hard to even envision a week. So, you know, we can, we can promise a year, but um yeah, I just really appreciate you guys coming on. I think this is a really vital conversation because I think that the way that most people are going to experience this um, and transform themselves is through kind of what they learn and read about what's happening. And you guys are the ones providing that. Well, thank you so, so much. So awesome. Yeah, of course. So anytime I can get you two on a Zoom, I'm going to do it. So beware. <laughs> um, so thank you. And that concludes this episode of What We Gotta Do. Um, all right, babes. Well, I will talk to you very shortly. Okay, everybody have a good day. Have a good Bye. day, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.